Today on the Show Means 2 podcast, Dr. Susan Pennegrass is joined by John Pelletier. John is the director of the Center for Financial Literacy at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. For more Show Means 2 podcast, visit showmeinstitute.org. Here's Dr. Susan Pennegrass. Um, such an important topic. I have three kids who are now between the ages of like 25 and 30. So they're not kids, but when they were young, I thought about this a lot. Like, how can I teach them about basic finance and financial literacy? I bought a book called Capitate Your Kids, which is just a terrible title because it really sounds a lot like Decapitate Your Kids, but (laughs) it's a hard thing. And, you know, we know that um, students end up with student loan debt and six and seven year car loans when they come out of college and make really uh, poor financial choices because they don't know any difference. Why do you think this isn't a priority for um, secondary education in the United States? Well, you know, fortunately you're in Missouri, so it is. I know we got an A. uh, We got an A on your, on your grading. It is, it is there more so than other places. The the problem with financial literacy is kind of twofold in, in, in my view. Uh, the, fir- the first is we focus on it being a single educational intervention, often just in high school. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, I kind of think about it in terms of uh, if you're trying to teach something, think about a foreign language. You don't right. say, I'm going to give you a one semester foreign language intervention in high school and you're fluent in French. Right. Or uh, you don't say, I'm going to teach you math one time, one semester, and expect you to do really good on the AP calculus test. Right. And, 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 and that's what we do uh, with financial literacy. Um, it, if I it, could back you up real quick, could you define financial literacy for the people who are listening? Just to make sure everyone knows what we're talking about. Sure. I mean, uh, financial literacy is really having uh, the knowledge and the skills to uh, successfully navigate through your entire personal life uh, uh, financially. So uh, uh, whether, whether that's knowing how to save for retirement uh, whether or not uh, a loan is appropriate for you. And, you know, think about what we went through with the housing crisis. You know, right. can, I, can I repay this loan with a teaser uh, low rate uh, for the first year or two? Uh, so so it's, 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 re- it's really doing that. Um, so I think you know, with, with young people today, until they have that educational intervention in high school, in those states that require it, as a high school graduation requirement, as a standalone equivalent of a half year course, of which there's only six states in the nation, Missouri being one of them. Right. Uh, so the, the one that's not on what, what you see is North Carolina uh, uh, will be will be added to the list. So right now there's six. Okay. And there are a variety of states that require a smidgen, if you will, a small portion of financial literacy is uh, clearly part of the educational standards in another course. Mm-hmm. That uh, has to be taken in order to graduate high school. Uh, and of those states, most of them are doing it in an economics course. And the amount of time allocated uh, can be anywhere from less than 10 hours to about 30 hours of instruction, uh, which, you know, using a 60 hour uh, Carnegie unit for a half semester course, right. you know, half of 120. Uh, isn't very significant. If you're getting seven or eight hours of this, yep. that's better than a stick in your eye, right? But it's not going right. to make you uh, some, you know, some someone who's who's got all savvy the financial. Yeah. So so that that's uh, I mean that's what's going on. Uh, the other thing that's problematic uh, with financial literacy. So it's not it's not sort of a K through twelve intervention, which is really sad. Uh, the author of Freakonomics. Yeah. Uh, it's in the Wall Street Journal today. I don't know if you, you saw that or it may have been the day before. There's an article about trying to change math curriculum. 
and yep. make it more uh, relevant. And, mm -hmm. and whether that's data science, but one of the things that you know he adds into that list is personal finance. That right. personal finance, you know, when you when you think about math, mathematics, uh, so much of it up through Algebra One can be tied to personal finance examples. And if you sure. go if you go back in time. Uh, there are textbooks. If you look at textbooks prior to 1920 for high school math, oh, yeah. back when you know a high school degree was a college degree, right, right. The, some the, the high school textbooks were chock full of real life personal finance math calculations. Uh, they they weren't this kind of esoteric, right, uh, algebraic, uh, you, you know, trigonometry type equation memorizations that you're not even sure when you're supposed to use them in real life. It was trying to say that math has real life applications. And that went away. Something happened from 1920 on, um, you know, and, and, and then this kind of got embeds and embedded somewhat <clears throat> into family and consumer science classes. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It was really about Check cooking and sewing and, yep. you know, knowing how to use the, I mean, I took them, I, we, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at that generation that that was pretty common. And, and, but it, there wasn't that much in it that was uh, personal finance uh, related. So, so how do you make it more K through 12? And you don't have to, you can embed it in pre-existing curriculum. Sure. Uh, by that, I mean pre-existing courses like mathematics or social studies. Uh, uh, you know, there are, if you go on the consumer financial protections on their website, a, a list of recommended books for young people that can be used in the classroom. Right. Uh, we have a program in Vermont that our treasurer runs called uh, Reading as an Investment. And, and there's all sorts of great books about needs versus wants and things of that nature uh, that can be uh, used as part of a, uh, an English language program, uh, certainly through elementary school. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, or, or even, even you know, in, in, in middle school. So it's really, so the question is, well, why isn't this happening? Very simple. There's no substantive educator training going on in the space mm. uh, nationally. So he, here's what we know about teachers is that if you survey them on their financial behaviors and financial literacy, yep. they are as financially literate or illiterate as someone who has the same education level they have. They're not- well, They don't have any more information. I mean- no, why, I, why, I, why would they? Right? I don't know. I feel like teachers, uh, I, I respect how hard that job is, especially now. And I know that it's, you know, um, a challenging field to go into, but it seems like when there were teacher um, strikes in the last few years, it was teachers who we know are going to make a, not a very high salary, probably about $50,000 yep. for most of their career. And they were talking about having $150,000 in student loans. And I don't understand how you get to the point where you've borrowed $150,000 and didn't realize what it was going to take to pay it back. Oh, right. I, yeah. I mean, I, unfortunately, I mean, I think that's endemic that there, there's, there's, uh, there's a, um, you know, even looking at your standards uh, for your state. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the problems with a lot of standards, they talk about credit, but there isn't yeah. like a real requirement. And some states have been doing this legislatively. Uh, you know, Texas comes to mind. There's a few others where what they're saying is, look, not, we're going to mandate that you, kids need to understand how to fill out the FAFSA. Yeah. The kids need to understand how student loans work, mm -hmm. the repayment system. I mean, there, there are, I'm talking really bright young Absolutely. people who don't 
who go to good colleges who don't understand that there's an interest rate being applied to their student loans and they don't understand compounding. Right. And, and, you know, I don't know if you've, um, I was reading recently uh, a book uh, called, uh, you know, COVID-19, I'm in the middle of it, The Great Reset. And, <laughs> and in there, they were talking about as it relates to COVID, how much trouble we as people have understanding compounding. Yep, and if yep. we have a 30% infection rate, how quickly, you know, how many days it takes to double versus a 5% infection rate. Right. And, and, you know, and he was saying how, Studies have shown, regardless of the pandemic, that people have terrible trouble understanding compounding. Yeah. And compounding is, is debt, I mean, or you know, interest on a mortgage. People do not understand these things at right. all. Same thing is true with, with savings. And you know, I give a great, uh, I love to talk to kids. You know, one of the, the things I'll, I'll ask them, there, there are two things where if you're trying to get the con- concept of compounding and someone said, you know, I'll say, look, if your grandfather passes away and leaves you $10,000 with a letter that says, please, I just want you to put it in a Vanguard S&P 500 index fund and not touch it until you retire at age 68. If, if you could double your money every decade, which is about a 7.2% return each decade, how much would you have when you retire at 68? Well, Virtually, and when you ask them, you need an answer like very quickly, they can't answer. But the answer is $320,000. So 10,000 that doubles every decade for that many decades, just through the power of inertia, doing nothing, don't, yeah. touch it, don't look at your statements, it can double. And, and, frankly, and that's shocking, right? That's shocking yeah, to most for, for, kids. For most people, absolutely. And yeah. I, I'm like the person who's always pestering younger people I work with who don't pick up um, matching funds on retirement. Like they, like oh you're like, you're leaving money on the table. Your organization saying, I would like you to give you money. more money. And you're saying, no, thank you. I don't want that money. And the, the time value of money, I don't think people understand to your point about the $10,000, the time value of money. And like the, if you have a 40 year career ahead of you, get started today, you know, just, I just, it frustrates me. It's very frustrating. Well, you know, the, I mean, your 401k, you know, you got to invert it. And it's funny how, and this comes to behavioral economics in some respects too, right? You know, it, it's, it's ask a different question, get a different answer. Right, right. And so if you say to someone, let's assume you have a dollar for dollar match up to three per, the first 3%. If you told someone uh, with regard to their 401k, if you said, look, what if I could guarantee you a hundred percent return? You give me $100 and I'll give you $200, would you take that? And everyone goes, yeah, absolutely. Right? It's 100% return. Even if it's a 50, to, even if it's a, a one half to one, 50% to dollar invest, invested, what if I gave you a 50% return? But yet that's literally the data they have <laughs> on the table when they're filling out their 401k thing and they're not taking the 100% return and the redu- and it's tax deferred potentially, or, or let's say it's the Roth. But but uh, yeah, that's what's happening. That's so happening. you do you think that we're heading in the wrong direction in this? Like, do you think that somebody who graduates from high school today is less likely to know about how mortgages work, how to have a checking account, how to get a car loan, whether they should have a credit card, what to do with the student loan debt in terms of pausing and deferring? Like, do you think that recent high school graduates know less now than they did say ten years ago? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The data doesn't seem to indicate they know a ton more. 
What's, what's more compelling is uh, some of the research that's being done, actually based on my research, the, the, that report card, is um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to understand that in states that have robust uh, financial literacy education policies, including some that are just requiring it be taught as part of uh, a course in economics like in Texas, right. are, are we seeing differences and, and so there, there's one study in particular that I really love. They, they looked at three states. So I'll, I'll, you, one, uh, one was Texas. So I'll use that as an example. Okay. And so they said, look, Texas, as of a certain date, maybe it was 2012 or somewhere around there, had this uh, re graduation requirement. The class of 2012 had to right. graduate, had to take this economics course with this stuff. And so uh, using uh, data from one of the, it might've been TransUnion or Experian, using data from them, they wanted to know, was there a change before the requirement and looking three years prior and three years after, was there a change in credit scores? And there was, credit scores went up. Okay. And they wanted to know, was there a change in 90 day default rates on debt? And there was, they went down. Uh, the, the credit score one was more uh, statistically significant, nice. although both were statistically significant. And, and so the, the, but the issue is, wait a minute, how do we just know that's not the economy? And so they looked at a state, an adjacent state, Oklahoma, that had no change in their policies over this period and saw no change, uh, no materially significant change right. in their state's uh, default rate and the credit scores. And to be clear, they were measuring people in that like 18 to 24 age category. They weren't measuring everyone. Right, right, right. Just that kind of recent, people who would have been recently graduated. And so uh, the other one, looking at a giant student loan data set, uh, and both of these studies are, are involved Carly Urban, uh, who's one of my favorite uh, researchers in this space and a good friend. What, so Carly looked at a much bigger data set of student loans. And, and again, based on you know, my report and other research, said, okay, which states are doing things substantive and are they making the right behaviors? For example, are kids maximizing their Pell Grants first? Right, are they right, maximizing right. their student loans before they get uh, uh, private loans uh, from private banking institutions that don't have the, you know, the deferment uh, capabilities and some of the other bells and whistles you, you would want. You'd want to maximize uh, those student loans prior to, plus they have income-based repayment, right? right, so right. Yep. You, want to, you want to maximize them. And what she found is, again, states that had more of this the students were making the wiser decisions. So, um, you know, my, my, my view is we, we, need more, we need more requirements that this be taught. Uh, we need uh, more trained educators. Yeah. And that's where we fall apart. You know, we'll take, you know, your state as an example, uh, because I was looking at this before I went on, you know, who can teach the financial, the personal finance course? <clears throat> um, it, it can be taught, a standalone personal finance course uh, can be taught by a business teacher, a family and consumer sciences teacher, okay. two that have been authorized. So just because I have those certificates on my, you know, that doesn't mean I'm financially expert. Utah is the leader in this state. So uh, they do a couple of things that uh, your state doesn't do. Uh, one is... <coughs> 
you actually have a, a you have to have a personal finance endorsement on your teaching certificate. Oh, gotcha. There's an actual kind of course regimen you have to take. You have to show that you've done certain things, and they they phased that in when they made that requirement. It took about three or four years, and they gave teachers the ability to get there. But now every educator in that state in Utah. is required to have a minimum competency level. It would so, be kind of like saying, you know, to, to an English teacher, hey, you're teaching French. And I've seen that. The- which I was going to say, that happens all the time. Yeah. Unfortunately. But Unfortunately, yeah. it does. Yeah. But, but so, so there needs to be um, some training needs to be done. Oh, of and, course. And, and so and that's one of the things we do. Uh, we, we have a training program, uh, okay. it's not gigantic. We've been doing it uh, since 2011. Uh, we've trained, you know, hundreds of uh, teachers, not, not a thousand yet. And, and it's the way we've structured it. It's just for the New England region. Uh, and we always get more people apply than we have spots and it's free. Uh, but that course, when teachers come and many of them are saying, I already teach this today in high school, we ask them what their comp- confidence levels are. Are they, are they highly confident? Or, con- or confident in their ability to teach personal finance before they arrive, 39% say I'm highly confident or confident. That, that means that basically 61% 61. say I'm teaching this, but I'm, you know. I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about. Not, so I, let's, yeah. let's just clarify, you did a state-by-state study, you assigned yeah. every state a grade and Missouri got an A, but what is that grade based on? Yeah, you know, so the, the grades are based on state public policy and, and your state has a public policy along with five others where they require that every student prior to high school graduation take the equivalent of a one semester half year course in personal finance before they graduate. Is there any I, test? That gets you an A. You, you get an A if you offer, if you make sure every high school student takes the class. Right, right. And it's, a, and it's, it's the equivalent of a standalone embedded requirement. Uh, some of your schools can embed it in some other social studies course like economics. Okay. And, and the other thing your state does, which is kind of interesting is uh, you have a personal finance exam, uh, just like you have one regarding English language arts or math. Uh, I think it just went live last year. Not everyone has to take it. If you wanna opt out of the, the requirement, right? Maybe you don't want to take personal finance because you want another AP class and you're trying to get into Harvard or something. If you take this exam and get a 90% or higher, you can waive that requirement. Or you can just take it cold. I gotcha. Test out. I pulled the exam up today. I was looking at it. Some yeah. of it's pretty simplistic, but some of it's a little bit sure challenging. Yeah. Some of it's challenging. And so, so you can take that exam the other thing is if you are in an embedded course, so it's not a standalone personal finance course, mm-hmm. you have to take it, but the local school district sets the pass-fail rate on that test. Uh, but if you take a standalone personal finance half-credit course um, under, under state law, uh, then uh, you don't have to take that test, but the test is made available if a teacher or a school district wants to give it it doesn't have to be tied to a graduation requirement. Does the test change? Or like the test I looked at today is the test? Well, my doubt is you're not looking at a test. You're probably looking at a sample test. Oh, okay. So they're not gonna let you see the question. Okay. Right? Just, yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, generally tests of this nature 
you want to uh, think about you, you know your regular standard English language arts right, right. math exam that's given at the statewide level to all students. Generally, they update some percentage of those questions every year. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm aware of other states. I don't know. I, you'd have to have somebody in your state. But there are some states who have tests like this, and they're static, and they don't they don't look at them for years and years and years. It'd be interesting to do a a study in Missouri, like how it's impacted, like you said, credit scores or um, finance choices. How long have we had this requirement? Do you know? Oh boy, you've had it for. I think pre 2015. It's, it's oh wow! Been, All right. It's been a while. It might have even been pre 2013. I'm not sure when. When. Well, my, we that is around 2012, but I could be wrong on the date. I don't have that in front of me. We have been known to complain at the Show Me Institute about the quality of the economics curriculum in high schools because a lot of students graduate and don't have a basic understanding of economics and the lack of curricular materials for that and professional development for teachers. Um, I guess this is similar in a sense, but this is a little bit more relevant to each student because this does in fact impact their well-being to the extent that they know how to navigate their financial life, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also depends on when it's given. So what I don't know is when kids are taking this. So oh, okay. I'll give you an example of another A state, Alabama. Uh, I, I think it was in the two, so I, I think you've been an A at least since the 2015 report. So I think it's okay. that. Uh, but um, Alabama got an A because they required uh, personal finance as a graduation requirement. And, and when that report came out, I think I was on every TV and radio show in Alabama because it's probably the first time the word education and A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, together um, with that for Alabama. Yeah, for Missouri as well. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so uh, so it, it got a lot of publicity when it, when when that happened the first time. And uh, but what they did, which I think is really tragic, is the way that the states recommended how to do courses. They're literally doing it uh, in grade nine. Oh. And so you know these are about life skills that you're going to apply immediately upon graduation from high school, whether you go to the military, right. whether, whether you pursue post-secondary degree work uh, mm -hmm. opportunities rather, uh, or whether you go into the workforce. And, and to me, the best year might be senior year, if not yeah. junior year, but it certainly wouldn't be freshman year. No, no, no. You know what I think is interesting too is the, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the percentage of high school students who have jobs has declined precipitously since yeah. I was in yeah. high school a million years ago where like most kids did and now students don't. So they're not, they don't have a paycheck and they don't have a checking account and they aren't paying for gas. You know what I mean? There's someone's handing them a credit card. So I mean, in some cases, not in all cases, but lots of times you have, you know, like you said, bright students, but they don't have any direct interaction with the financial industry, with banks, with, you know, with bosses and paychecks. And so it probably certainly in ninth grade, it's, it's kind of imaginary, right? Like they're not buying a car. They're not, you know, getting car insurance. So that's, I don't know. I think that's an interesting trend to me. I think it's um, probably not the best thing. I think it's good. I think it's good to have a job when you're in high school, but you know, most, most students don't. Yeah. I find that interesting. I mean, yeah, I live in a resort community. Right. So, you know, with, with, I've got three boys, my youngest now is 16 and they're able to get jobs in the summer, Yeah, you know, because you live in a resort community and, right. and, it's, and it's interesting to watch because I love it when I see, you know, one of them think about something they want to do 
yeah might be going to some concert somewhere where the ticket's 150 bucks or something i don't, I don't right. know you know but but it's like they think about it in terms of how many hours of work and i remember my eldest there was something he wanted and when he figured out it was worth 12 hours of work he thought you know it's not really worth 12 hours of work. right right <laughs> but if you don't have that interaction again with like your own money you know and it to the extent that parents are saying school is your job, which I've always said, no, school is actually school and a job is your job. Yeah. Um, then you don't, you don't, the first time that somebody earns money and buys something with the money they earn, it's immediate and it's there. You know what I mean? It's tangible. And uh, I just not giving um, high school students that like having that experience, I think is kind of a shame. So then we have to teach them financial literacy you know, abstractly so that oh, yeah. they can you know, your, your kid comes home with their first paycheck and says, who's FICA and why are they taking my money? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. That's exactly. Uh, right. And uh, how to deposit a check and all those yeah, kind of things, yeah. you know, it's like, it's the financial world is much more seamless. We can Venmo and get all those things. But I, I do know of a recent college graduate who I consider to be very smart, who got a seven-year car loan and they just don't, they fell for the, what payment do you want? ruse where you know i think my dad taught me never to fall for that right so right i don't know well yeah that and the other thing is they don't even fully comprehend the embedded interest rate uh nope. and, and uh it's it's uh, i mean that's the other thing that certainly has happened post uh, the great recession is you know the average loan length for automobiles has really expanded you know six Insane. years is the norm you know and that was six years norm. is the norm yeah pretty much yeah that's incredible and, to me. And, you know, people would be stunned. I and mean, if you go and look at the data that's available from uh, these credit bureaus uh, out there that they put out reports and, and you look at the differential in interest rates between, you know, prime and subprime. Yeah. Credit, it's, it's still pretty enormous. I mean, right now the prime rate's very low, but, but if you have subprime credit, you know, it's, it's, um, and that's what people don't understand. I, I often say you really need to understand uh what a credit score is, how it's calculated, know where your credit report is. But but if you can have a good credit score based on your personal behaviors with regard to repaying bills uh, that you owe, if you have a great credit score, uh, then everything will cost you less money that you finance, whether it's uh, a credit card yeah. uh, purchase or, or, or mortgage or uh, an automobile loan. Uh, my, and my favorite thing to do with young people is if you bring in, you know, when you get the credit card offers in the mail, congratulations, yeah. you've been pre-approved, right? Yeah. Nobody looks at the fine print, but if you actually bring that, I'll just photocopy and blow up that one. There's a section on the APR and I love that. Now, remember, you've been pre-approved. They right. already said, you're wonderful. We want your business. You've been pre-approved. <laughs> the card, the, the credit card section will say something like, you know, you've been pre-approved, your interest rate is 13%, 18% or 23%. <laughs> well, like because they have three buckets depending <laughs> yeah. on your credit score and you you have no idea until you literally get your credit card statement, you know, in the mail with your or the credit card in, in the mail your little uh, card. You don't know necessarily what your interest rate is because they sure. they've got a when you when you sign that offer you're authorizing them to pull the you know your your credit right. report and figure out what they're going to give you. You know, the My, my youngest learned a tough lesson on credit scores by not giving 60 days notice to a summer apartment rental. Ooh. Basically it was just, he had a three month lease. Didn't give 60 days notice because of the, thought it was a three month lease. doesn't matter. He owed some money and 
by the time he did go to get a credit card, they said, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. He was right. shocked. He right. was shocked because he had never needed it. So uh, now he knows exactly what they are. Now yeah. he follows it very closely, but um, yeah, it's a rude awakening. And, you know, I, one thing I have to say though, I'm glad that we got an A, but in Missouri, uh, our proficiency in math is like 33%. We can't seem to get much above a third proficient in math. Yeah, and, so, and, that's, and that's really one of the fundamental things we know about financial literacy is numeracy and financial literacy go hand sure. in hand. So it's really hard to be great at financial literacy. We're, we're talking basic numeracy skills. We're not talking that you're yeah, yeah, yeah. a whiz bang person, you know, with AP Calc. It's it, but you need basic numeracy. So um, would your solution to that be um, just making personal finance? uh embedded into the math curriculum the way it used to be or would it be this like what's your preference embed more personal finance within all of the curriculum so that it's kind of seamless or take a personal finance class for a semester yeah i i i guess i'm not either or both you know okay. I, I think if we could embed some level of personal finance concepts in math mm -hmm. uh, uh you know one of the big things you hear i'm sure you know you, know, you have children i have children that come home when am i ever going to use this yeah, yeah, yeah. When it comes to math. And, and so, uh, you know, the whole point of that article in the Wall Street Journal I mentioned the other day was how do we make math more relevant and interesting to people? Mm -hmm. and, and let's not have people wasting times on things they can do on a calculator anymore. Mm -hmm. let's, let's figure out how we move math into you know, the 21st century and, and, uh, and make it more relevant. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of relevance in, in, in math. Yeah. And bringing uh, into uh, certainly through Algebra 1. Uh, personal finance concepts, not as the sole focus, but a focus. But I think a standalone uh, kind of capstone course like you have in Missouri, uh, given senior year before people are going out there on their own mm -hmm. to understand these things. And it's, and it's funny, there's a, we, we know about financial literacy that just in time learning is best. So for example, if, uh, if I want somebody to be a, a sponge Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and absorb knowledge. Uh, think about buying a home. If I can get in front of someone who's buying a home for a first time, they're very interested in yes. how, how do you get to them? And, and so I, I view that senior second semester where you you see the real world ahead of you in the distance, yep. that you're more likely to be sponge-like then than, fresh, than first semester junior year. And so if I, if, if I could pick a time frame. Okay. standalone course, I would highly recommend it be given uh, right you know, to, to, to seniors because you can make it really relevant to their lives. So now that we've firmly established ourselves as like, or my, maybe I should just speak for myself, someone who wants all the kids to get off the lawn, right? And work hard like I used to work hard. What do you think, wrapping this up, what's your impression on of uh, Robin Hood? Are you familiar with Robin Hood? Oh, very familiar. Uh, what do you think? With Robin Hood. I've got, I've got the Robin Hood game, I, I, as my kids refer to it. The I, Robin Hood I, game. I've got a son who has a Robin Hood account. Uh, yeah, it's um, it, it's the gamification of investing, certainly. You've got all sorts of rewards and triggers. Uh, I find it uh, as someone, so my background is, is uh, prior to doing this in the last 10 years, I was a senior executive at uh, two large asset management firms okay. that were tied to the mutual fund industry and I'm on the mm -hmm. board of a large uh, mutual fund family. Um, I, I, I get very concerned with the gamification of uh, uh, investing. 
uh, I think for some people uh, who got those checks, the $1,200 checks, uh, this was a replacement to their uh, uh, betting that they were doing on, yeah. on uh, sports. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, it's, a, it's a good potential substitute. What's really scary is how quickly somebody on Robinhood compared to say a Schwab account, yep. or the Ameritrade account, quickly uh, through the online education they have moves into options. Yeah. And, and, and those are dangerous. You may have read about the guy who I did, you know, committed suicide and owed a million dollars. I, I, you know, there, I don't know uh, the, when you look at the, what's going on with the trading volumes mm-hmm. of certain stocks. Uh, the other thing is think about a stock like Amazon that has a huge price tag. Robinhood lets you go in and buy a fractional share. So if you right. can only buy 10, worth, 10 bucks worth of a $2,000 stock, they, they, they package it yeah. and allow you to do that. So you, you have a lot of different things going on. And I think Hertz is the poster child. What happened to it? What it, happened to Hertz? Well, Hertz was in bankruptcy. And uh, they went down like many other stocks, your line. Think about, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. They, they dropped like a rock. And suddenly their stock started kind of going way uphill uh, very, very quickly. Uh, a lot of that trading uh, really was Robinhood. <laughs> okay. uh, they know that now. And, and uh, so they actually went to the bankruptcy judge and said, we got a lot of people who want to buy a stock. Can we issue a billion? Wow. And they were going to issue a billion dollars and the SEC said, wait a minute, I think maybe that's not a good idea. And so they didn't do that offering. But uh, you had a company that was in bankruptcy where the anticipated recovery rate for the people who own the debt, you know, everyone fully anticipated equity would be valueless. Yeah. Right. And they were buying it for a couple of reasons. One is the price was so tiny. So yeah. It was less than a buck a share and it went up to two bucks. But your risk of 100% loss yep. as an equity holder was like over 90%. And even bondholders were thinking, we'll be lucky to come out of this with maybe 80% right. recovery rate on our, on our, on our debt. And Until- so <laughs> total lack of understanding about how the system was. Oh yeah. I've, I've heard anecdotally of people going on Reddit and saying, how do I get from the red level to the green level on the Robin Hood game? You know, like, Oh, good God. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's what I've heard. It's like, I can they- believe it. I mean, I, I can believe it. It's uh, it's bad. And I think that that one has in particular been um, criticized for taking people who have almost no financial literacy and getting them into instruments they don't understand, like options or, you know, I don't know. It's, well, I, I, it's, I can, it's concerning. Even, even before the, 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 the crash that we had in March of, mm-hmm. of the markets, Robinhood at that point had, uh, and think about this, so they, they had more uh, people with accounts on Robinhood than TD Ameritrade had. So it's bigger yeah. than TD Ameritrade, which is now being kind of gobbled up by Schwab. Yeah. Uh, but but it's, it's uh, so, so that's kind of hard to get your head around. And then the other thing is, uh, you know, I, they're the envy of many financial services firms. Sure. Because the average age of a Robinhood account holder is 31. Yeah. So, so and according to you, they help. probably have no financial literacy, right? Well, and that's the other thing. So, you know, you know, people, so one thing, you know, to, to understand about financial literacy is the demographics of financial literacy. Who's more financially literate? Here's what we know. We know that the older you get, 
based on the data that the more financial literate you become. So the silent generation is even more financially literate than the baby boomer generation. It goes all the way down to millennials and Gen Z. So it's kind of like almost a, 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 you know, a, a, a line going from one corner of a page to another. Wow. You know, and that, that, that sort of uh, uh, scale. The other thing we know, so we know, and, and why is that? It's obvious you make mistakes in your life and you get smarter. You know, you, you know, unfortunately with financial literacy, this is truly the school of hard economic rocks that you're going through sure. to get more financially literate. So the other thing we know is that um, it's, there's a race differential. Sure. Uh, you know, white people are, are, are more financially literate than people of, of color. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing we know is there's a sex dimension to this, okay. that uh, there's uh, men tend to be more financially uh, uh, literate than women, uh, particularly at older ages. So it's less sure. of an issue at younger ages. I think that has to do with, I, I, I think about my parents and who was in charge of money. I was going to say who controlled the finances. Yeah. yeah so I, so I think there, there's, there's some of that. The problem is people who desperately need financial illiteracy are women because they're going to live longer. They're right. probably going to outlive the person who's running the money. And so they need to see many it. examples of this, many yeah, examples. Right. An I'm, older lady, her husband dies and she's like, I didn't know that he mortgaged everything. I didn't know we didn't yeah. have life insurance. <laughs> you know, it's like. Absolutely. Absolutely. It many happens times. all the time. And, and, and then the last thing is uh, education. We know that there's uh, the, the more educated you are, the more financially literate you are. Sure. And then when you look outside of uh, say Missouri, the states like that, there are six of them that require this in every school district. There are other states where um, what, what they've done is, is very, very different. Um, what, 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 what they've done is it's up to the local school district to figure out if there's a graduation requirement. And so looking at 11,000 public high schools, uh, another group that I work with, they've discovered that the high schools most likely to mandate personal finance as a graduation requirement when the state doesn't require it are wealthy zip codes. And they use free and reduced lunch numbers. Yeah. So the higher your free and reduced lunch rate, the, the less likely. likely you are to require this to be taught to anyone. I would argue they probably need it the most. They probably need it the most. Well, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for um, talking to me about it. Uh, I feel like we're hard in the schools in lots of ways, what they don't teach, what they don't teach well, and this is maybe more of the same, but this is important to every individual um, to their well-being. So I think this one is, this is a good one. So I really appreciate it. Enjoy New England. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And enjoy, enjoy your A status. Our, our A status. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.